Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Welcome to episode 83 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I am your host, Jack Rico. And if you hear birds chirping and a little bit of nature in the background, that is because I am in Spain. I am on vacation. Uh, Just taking advantage of the summer break, but not taking advantage of not giving you guys an episode for this July 4th weekend. And I have two great guests. One of them is Carmen Cabana. She's a cinematographer from Colombia uh, who works in American uh, television shows such as Narcos, as well as uh, Stars' New Vida. And we kind of talk a little bit about what it's like to be a woman and be a Latina and be a cinematographer, which is usually a industry that's mostly men. That's really changing, obviously, with Rachel Morrison from Black Panther um, and Mudbound being nominated for an Oscar. Uh, Things are changing, but how are things changing for a Latina? So we kind of broke a little bit into that. And for anybody, uh, any woman that also wants to kind of break in, she gives us a lot of really good tips in what you need to have in terms of skills and the mindset you need to have to kind of break into this business. And then obviously Ant-Man and the Wasp. This is Ant-Man 2. It comes out in theaters this weekend. And uh, I, for one, really, really enjoyed it. My friend Mike Sargent, Really, really enjoyed it. And we're going to talk about why the movie is good. Not necessarily uh, just a typical review, but we're kind of going to break down sort of a lot of the periphery of what this movie actually means for Hollywood, what it means for moviegoers, uh, and what are some of the things that has made it good. Because I didn't think the first one was necessarily good. This one, this one's just right. And it's right for the families. Uh, It's right in so many ways. And we kind of discussed that uh, in this episode. So stick with us, hear the birds chirping a little bit more, (laughs) and uh, we'll be right back with Carmen Cabana. Carmen Cabana is currently one of the most sought-after Latina cinematographers in the entertainment industry, and her ability to visually capture emotions has made her one of the top female cinematographers amongst filmmakers in the film and television industry working today. Carmen Cabana, welcome to the Highly Relevant Podcast. Thank you very much, Jack. It's happy to be here with you. Uh, Carmen, what exactly is cinematography? Well, cinematography is the art of telling a story visually. So we are sort of the right hand of the directors. When it comes to um, deciding how things are going to be framed, lead, or uh, the camera movements, we handle all those decisions in collaboration with the director. And then we make it happen. Basically, we do communicate and give the technical assessments to the rest of the team and the department heads so that it can all be a collaboration in unison. How did you get started into cinematography? That actually was life pushing me in that direction because I I love telling stories and I wanted to be a writer. 
And then while being in the U.S., I started uh, to discover my passion for cinematography. And I did a documentary in Venezuela, and the people that saw it here in the U.S. really loved it. It won an audience award. And then they called me for different shorts, thesis projects, music videos. And a year and a half into film school, I booked my first feature, which was amazing. And then uh, I guess the story, then by demand, I sort of started to research more and learn more about the craft because I had to keep up with what the needs of all my clients with the different films. Right. Uh, and in doing it, I fell in love. Uh, when you were getting started, how many female cinematographers were there while you were working in the industry? Very, very few. I mean, that I knew of, there were like six in the ASC, you know, Nancy Schreiber, Amy Vincent, and a few others that were kind of like the bigger names. Right, like Rachel but Morrison. Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, Rachel Mor- Morrison back then, when I started to have no hair of her because she's on the younger side, I, I believe. <laughs> but um, there weren't there weren't many many actually. Um, so and I never met one in person until probably three years after I was already in cinematography. So very very few. Why why do you think that that's the case? Why is it that you were one of the very few cinematographers in this business when there's so much creative talent out there. Why, what, why has Hollywood failed us in that matter? I think, unfortunately, because of the stereotype and the assumption that cinematography is a work for men because it does involve a lot of you know, physical effort as well with equipment and stuff like that. I think people underlooked women and they didn't see it as a possibility. Or women were getting um, sort of, I don't want to say typecast, but like, type crew, if that's a word, into films that were more like romantic comedies or coming of age or dramas versus, you know, action or other mainstream um, things. So I think a lot of it was a misconception that fortunately right now is starting to break and people are seeing how equal we are. And possibly, you know, a lot of the talent that existed there, since they weren't getting the opportunities, they were going into other departments, like they were staying forever and ever in assistant camera positions or, you know, in... um, gaffer or stuff like that mm-hmm. so it did I, I think it's a matter of, of people not having faith that women could do it unfortunately by now especially now that you mentioned Rachel Morrison people can see clearly that women not, on, not only can do it we can do it really really well what do you think is the value of a female sensibility in cinematography compared to a man it's very different I mean it's hard to describe in words but we do see things a different way uh, by nature and I think in the way that we also collaborate with people, like I find myself to be very nurturing and very accommodating of, of not only my team, but everybody in the production. Like I really think of it globally as a community work versus just like my own little universe and my own department. And I think that is a female thing that we tend to be protective and we can multitask really well. Um, but for the rest, it's, it's very subjective. Like for instance, in the show Vida, it's all about showing, you know, the female gaze, the female perspective of things or our intersexuality. And how do you define that? And like I said, it's, it's hard in words. But uh, but if you look at the show, you will see that the way these sex scenes are portrayed, it's not like the traditional way where we are, like, emphasizing the women's body and things like that. Like, we're actually emphasizing more the male anatomy or stuff like that. Um, Interesting. It's very, it's very interesting, yeah. You started getting your name out there through uh, Narcos. You were the cinematographer for Narcos. How did Vida, uh, which is now on Stars, how did that job come to you? 
Actually, I gotta give credit to my agent. Um, uh, my agent, Madi Paolo at APA, you know, he. Um, so, cinematographers he have agents with, uh, too? I, I oh, had no idea yes. about that. Yes. Wow, look at that. Okay, I thought it, it just applied to actors oh, yeah. <laughs> and directors, but I never thought that cinematographers would have agents as well. Oh, we have agents and publicists, like my wonderful publicist team <laughs> right yeah, now. Yeah, cool. Uh, yeah, managers. Yeah, we do. We definitely have agents. And, and the way it works, especially on big shows like this, is the line producers, they reach out to the agencies for recommendations on who, who are kind of like their top talents. And my agency, APA, submitted me to Chrisanne, which is our line producer, and she very kindly, um, you know, called me in for an interview, and then I met all the producers, the showrunner, Tanya. I watched the pilot that they had done, and I loved the show, so basically I, I nailed the interview, and, uh, and I'm very grateful for that opportunity. Tell me a little bit about the show, uh, because it's getting a lot of high praise for having very Latinx topics. How much did you know about the show, and uh, what did you bring from your own experience to the show? Well, for one, uh, I am a woman and I'm also Latina. So it is a show indeed that deals with, you know, Latinx, but also with what is happening with gentrification in, in East Los Angeles, which is something that actually in Colombia hasn't happened much. So it's something that I've been learning about more here in, in Los Angeles. So my, my job was kind of like to bring a little bit of like the the Latin roots into it, into the visual aesthetics of how we portray the streets, the businesses, you know, like the life that is happening because the neighborhood is a big character in the in the story. Um, and like I said, I might take on sexuality. Like I'm a, oh, I don't know, it's going to sound funny, but I am a sexual woman. And I was always kind of like upset at how, you know, sex scenes or female desires were portrayed, <laughs> especially in, in Latin, in Latin culture. It's like most of the Latin content was always dealing about women wanting to get married and all these cliches and stereotypes or women portrayed as like, you know, the weaker end. And these, uh, female characters in the show, they are badasses. They do whatever they want. You know, they are rebels. They each one have their own issues. And they definitely take all the freedom to do what they please about and even make the mistakes that they want and they're not ashamed of. So they're non-traditional characters and also the LGBT aspect is something that wasn't portrayed too much in, in Latin shows. Mm -hmm. And this one, you know, a lot of the characters, as you know, are, are gay. So that's another aspect that I felt the show was very bold about. You know, you've worked in Mexico, Cuba, Colombia. Uh, I'm Colombian myself. My parents are from Barranquilla, Colombia. And, uh, you know, one of the things about Colombian cinema overall is that we have great talent. The problem is, is that we don't make enough films uh, for people to see. Uh, how would you rate mm -hmm. Colombian cinema today? Well, I think Colombia, again, has also been given really big steps. And the film incentives that we got, uh, I don't remember how many years ago, but the film incentives have helped more productions get made. Um, I feel more than that is the content. Like, I think Colombia suffers a little bit, again, from the stereotype that a lot of people do films about, like, you know, drugs and narcos and things like that. And the Colombians ourselves, we're tired of that topic. We're tired of, of the cliché. But unfortunately, that's what seems to be selling in the international market. As you saw, narcos was a huge success. Um, so there's, there's kind of that contradiction of the stories that we want to make and we want to portray as Colombians because our culture is so rich and so diverse, as you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but unfortunately, the international market keeps labeling us as, you know, this drug-dealing country, which is absolutely not the case. 
Um, so, I mean, but there are very exciting filmmakers coming out of it. I mean, Andy Baez, who's also director of Narcos, mm-hmm. he's done some really great movies. He did a horror one that I really like. Um, he also did Satanás. So there's been more things being made. And Congo Films, now they open a film school that is amazing with all the equipment that they had at the rental house. Um, so I'm really excited for more things happening and for, you know, more stories to reach in the international market. Ibarranquilla is awesome, by the way. My family, are, I'm sorry, I just want to say my family is out of the La Costa. Oh, <laughs> qué bien. Oh, pero es que con la playa sí. y la rumba y la música de vallenato, you know. Todo, la arepa de huevo. <laughs> la arepa de huevo. Yeah. Oh, it's just so delicious. Uh, but you were talking about Andrés Baez. Uh, you know, I spoke to him... Uh, several months ago uh, for one of the premieres of, of Narcos on Netflix, there's a contradiction here. Narcos glorifies and promotes drugs in the cocaine era of Pablo Escobar. And here you have mm-hmm. a Colombian director and now you have a Colombian cinematographer also attached to it. Doesn't that give the optics that you guys are supporting this when there's all this momentum and wave about not being a part or being affiliated in any way to anything that promotes drugs in the past of Colombia? You know, the way I look at it is I think of, for instance, the Holocaust movies. Like, there are so many movies about the Holocaust, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they are promoting. I think filmmaking is a way of showing the world, you know, certain realities and certain things. And even the Narcos does glorify a little bit of Pablo Escobar, for instance. Like they actually they portray him in a way that you kind of like the guy because unfortunately it is the lead <laughs> of the of That's the show. Right. So you can hate your protagonist. It did show a lot of the hardcore things that Pablo indeed did to cause to Colombia. For instance, all those explosions, the death of the innocents. Like basically, Pablo Escobar brought terrorism into Colombia, and I think the show also does its part in showing that and the effects and the drama of the families losing their loved ones. Um, so I think you know it's kind of like journalism. Like even though you are telling a story about a certain area doesn't necessarily mean that you are either supporting or being pro in that regard. In fact, I think it's great that Andy was there and myself, that we at least two Colombians were there, because otherwise the story could have been taken in so many different ways that could have been not accurate to to the space, to the culture, to anything at all. So at least two of us were there sort of, you know, helping out on that regard. Not just the two of us, there were a lot of Colombians in the production. Take me through a typical day of a cinematographer what does your eye look at? Do you do you look at things completely different as a cinematographer than a regular person? For example, you know, film critics they they can't really enjoy a film anymore like a fan. They're constantly looking yeah. at all the little things in the background just to kind of make an assessment of what the film is. For you, when you watch a TV show, when you watch a movie, you know, are you constantly looking at the color grading? Are you looking at the what kind of lens they were using for that shot? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it goes 50-50. If the story, I'll, I'll say it this way, if the cinematographer and everybody did a great job of making a compelling and captivating film, then I don't look at anything because I am so invested in the story that I become 100% an audience member. Uh, and I think that's what cinematography should be. It should be non-intrusive. It shouldn't call uh, attention upon itself because it's there to support the, the story, the drama, the, the emotional aspect. 
but but I will say, you know, there are movies like, for instance, Blade Runner, where the cinematography is very gorgeous. I was not so crazy about the story. Um, so that's a film, for instance, that I would look at it twice for the cinematography. Right. And I, was I think like, many people like going did. to a museum kind of thing. But for the rest, I was like, eh, <laughs> I could take the volume off, in my opinion, not to offend the filmmakers. True. <laughs> so, so I think that's kind of how it works out for me. It's like there are films that I just watch for the look. But honestly, as an audience, I just want to film. I, I, I love the movie The Secret in, their, in the Eye, Their Eyes from Argentina. Oh, I love that's it. It's a great It's really... Yeah, it's a good thing. Well. And it has it all. It's so well shot, but you don't even think that it's well shot. You're thinking of those characters. You're living with them. You're crying wow. with them. You're loving with them. And that's what should, cinematography should be like. It should be a supporting um, tool and not a highlight to yourself. I got into cinematography when I started hearing the name Emanuel Lubezki, El Chivo. And he's, won so, he's won so many Academy Awards I wanted to ask a cinematographer such as yourself, what exactly makes him so special? Well, I've never worked with Chivo directly, but I know him socially, and he is a beautiful human being. So I think he has the combination of all. I think a good cinematographer has to have, first of all, a good eye, but he also has to be a storyteller, and he needs to be a wonderful person to collaborate with. Because when a movie or a film, whatever it is, has like a good um, aura about it. Like basically, when everybody that works on it loves the project, I think there's something magical that does show in the screen. Um, and I think that's what she will ask. I think he puts great passion. He brings himself into the picture. And I think that's why his work is outstanding. I'm dying to ask you, do you use Instagram? I do, but I'm a funky VP. Like, I'm not like those VPs that they're putting pictures of, like, oh, you know, their work or pictures that they take every day. <laughs> I, I'm really the opposite. Like, actually, I don't take pictures when I'm not on set. So you're like a singer. You know, it's you only sing in concerts. You don't sing, you know, for people, like, you know, uh, in your living room or anything like that. It's like you got to be paid to take a photo or? Well, I mean, not even because there are some projects that I sort of do pro bono just because I believe in them. Um, it's more about, I like craving something. So if I was to be doing photography or cinematography all the time, then I don't know. I think some of my enthusiasm towards it might die. That's just my personal take. So because I limit myself from not doing it, then when I'm on set is when I can like explode and like really go into it. Like like this particular film that I'm doing, I'm loving it. Like it's four in the morning and I'm jumping up and down. Great, next show. <laughs> and, and the actors are like, oh my God, you're enthusiastic. I'm like, yeah, because I'm craving this so much. And I think it's because I don't do it so often. So it doesn't become like a, like a recurring thing. It becomes... Yeah, like an exclusive uh, date <laughs> that I get with a camera and everything else on set. So I look forward to it. <laughs> Who is the best cinematographer <laughs> you have ever seen? Uh, I love Vittorio Storaro. I think he was one of my greatest influences when I got into this. Uh, he's an Italian cinematographer. He did uh, The Conformist. Um, he, oh my God, it's like he, he works a lot with Bertolucci. He just handles the shadows very much like Rembrandt. Mm-hmm. So that's wow, why I like that's a big I really praise love for him. my rich. It is. I really love the rich shadow situation. Uh, but I also love uh, Shamus Magarvi and Chivo that you mentioned, of course. 
Uh, and now I'm looking more into Rachel Morris. I mean, now that I hear more of her, um, definitely starting to look more into like more female cinematographers and discovering for myself as well what is out there. Because like I said, it's kind of like unfortunate that the praise often goes to the same people. So it becomes like, like we call in Colombia, una rosca, no? It's the <laughs> same over and over and over. The click, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, and now fortunately, you know, things are getting broader and people are actually starting to dig for new talent. And there is a lot of talent out there, not just in cinematographers. There are so many directors, writers, other people in other areas, but they really just need a break. They have the chops. Uh, and they just need a break. So I think, you know, the more our industry broadens, the more as an audience we're going to experience better, fresher cinema, for sure. How many female Latina cinematographers do you know of? In person, I only know um, Ana Mortegui. But by phone conversations or social media, um, I hear of uh, Moira Morel. She's also read by my agency, and I'm, actually I'm doing right now an HBO pilot at the end of this feature, and I recommended her to do another one of their, of their pilots, just because I heard she was a very pleasant person, and she was working on Insecure as a camera operator. So I'm, you know, I'm starting to support more, you know, again, more female cinematographers. I think referrals is a good thing. So I haven't met her, but I really recommended her for two jobs. Nice. <laughs> um, and I heard of Mariana, um, I think her last name is Anto, Antonioni, Antonelli, Anto something. I also haven't met her, but I know she's a camera operator on Westworld and a lot of things. And she surprised me to me on the phone that she also wants to get more chances as a cinematographer because she's been kind of like labeled as a camera operator. Again, she needs the opportunity, and I think hopefully more women will kind of join forces and elevate each other. I think competition shouldn't be about like you taking the, the spotlight. I think it's about helping everybody. If you want to get further, you should do it together. Oh no, that's I totally... kind of my my philosophy on that. I, I think it's a great philosophy. And uh, last few questions. Let's say you're let's say you're you're a young woman that wants to go into the movie business. Why should they go into cinematography and what kind of background, what kind of skill do you think that they need in order to be successful in that uh, craft? I think if you have a natural eye, I mean, if your whole life you've been sort of like paying attention to to beauty, and beauty is not just beautiful things, there's a lot of beauty and ugliness. So I mean, like, you know, textures, colors, shapes, things that like catch your eye, then you probably have a natural ability for cinematography. So that is the number one thing, because like you asked me earlier, when I do step into a set, I do look at a lot of random things. Like sometimes I start like behind a glass or, or under objects under a table. Like people think I'm crazy. But really what we're trying to find is... <laughs> what you're trying to find is like how to show something that is not straightforward, how to elevate what's already in front of your eyes. Um, so I think to be a cinematographer, you have to be kind of like an explorer and like a kid, you know, when, when you look at everything with fresh eyes, even something that you've seen several times, like sometimes it happens with sets, like you're filming it, <laughs> the whole season is the same apartment. So you have to continue exploring more things within the same space. I like to think of a preso, you know, a prison inmate in a cell where <laughs> right. so you're looking at the same thing, but you still find that little thing of the, on the wall that somebody wrote or the scratch here and there, just something that is going to make it pop. Uh, so I think that's the number one. And for the rest, you do have to learn a lot of technical things, the name of every piece of equipment, 
I think a VP needs to be a gaffer first. You need to be able to do mm. your own lighting in case your your team quits, which that has happened to me actually. <laughs> so if you find yourself stranded with nobody <laughs> to do it for you, you need to know exactly how to solve those situations. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of technical things, but for instance, the American Society of Cinematographers, they have an amazing um, supportive program for education. Like uh, they call it Friends of the ASC, and you get access to all their magazines. Uh, you can buy technical books at discounts. You can you can attend workshops, master classes. It's a great tool, and that's where you learn from people like a children. Okay? What is the most beautiful visually aesthetic film you've seen in your life? In darkness and in creepiness, I love Alien. I know it's such a strange movie to call for cinematography, but it's so, the first Alien, it's so effective in making you feel that sense of like loneliness and terror in the shadows and the creature and being in the space. Um, I love Forrest Gump. I also, well, I mentioned earlier, you know, The Conformist or Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse yeah. Now is also by Vittorio Storaro. I love Atonement by Shamus Magari. Like, I think cinematography is so fun. Well, Carmen Cabana, thank you so much for coming on the show, and congratulations on the second season of the original series from Stars, Vida. Uh, I hope I get to see you at the Oscars one of these days. <laughs> well, I hope so. That's a good challenge, so I'll take it. And thank you so much for all the good wishes. I really appreciate the interview, and again, best luck to all the current cinematographers out there. Go kick So before we move on to our Ant-Man and the Wasp segment with Mike Sargent, I wanted to quickly tell you about Saks Underwear. I am in Spain and wouldn't think of going on vacation without them. And there's a simple reason for that, and it's that it, it feels really good on me. It's that feeling of support and comfort. That's what Saks Underwear is all about. It's the only men's underwear that I know that's actually designed with our anatomy in mind. When Saks first got started, they wondered, why can't men's underwear be better? The answer? the ballpark pouch, which is my favorite part of these underwear. Uh, a 3D support system unlike anything else in men's underwear today. I use them and it feels like bliss. Everything stays put, no friction. You can move around comfortably in it. And then there's the breathable fabrics. Super soft, moisture wicking that repels body odor. And since I started wearing Saks, I really don't wear any other brand. I want you to feel the same exact way. So. I've worked with Sex Underwear on this great limited time deal. Shop from anywhere on their site and get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. But to get this great offer, you need to use my promo code HIGHLYRELEVANT at checkout. Order a few pairs of Saks right now with this great offer and go to SaksUnderwear at SAXXUnderwear.com. That's Saks with two X's and use the promo code HIGHLYRELEVANT at checkout. Remember, SaksUnderwear.com. Promo code HIGHLYRELEVANT. I'm here at the Lowe's Theaters in New York City. Uh, just came out from seeing Marvel's Ant-Man and the Wasp, and I'm joined here by Mike Sargent, film critic extraordinaire. You've guys seen him on Fox News, BAI, PBS, and uh, I met you there, and we just literally came out from the Majestic Theater. It was a pretty packed Press screening. Pretty cracking. We went to the 3D screening, which is not so popular with film critics. Right. Uh, obviously. They, uh, Disney, on this occasion, decided to split it 
into a 2D and a 3D screening for the preference of whoever was coming. And it was a first come, first serve, which was... Yes. I never... I, I, I haven't seen that yet so far. Well, it's you like know, let, let me just say this. To, everything is context. Who is more powerful in the film industry than, indus- than Disney? Right. They can do what they want. So right. as far as they're concerned, you know, first come, first serve. Maybe we'll let you bring a guest. Maybe we won't. It's Disney. They are <laughs> they are pretty much the most powerful film studio on the planet right now. Absolutely. So if you hear uh, in the background uh, cars whizzing by, we're literally in the me- in, in the median right outside of the theater because they confiscated my on phone. Broadway, on Broadway. They didn't confiscate your phone, but they confiscated my phone. So... Uh, it was a while till I got my phone, and we just decided to kind of do it out here. So, let's get right into it. Was Ant-Man and the Wasp actually better than the original Ant-Man? Well, you know, here's the thing. I want to give two elements of context. One, whenever you have a film that's a first film, it's got to be an origin. So you can't really get into, you know, what the what you can do with the story and the character and the elements of the story until you've completed the origin. So the first film was an origin film. Now they're free to do whatever you can do with the story. Right. That's that's one context. Two, Marvel has really kind of re set the bar re Yeah, man. In terms of superhero films, they get what it is that they're doing before people got what it is that they're doing. And that is that it's a universe. There are multiple characters. We tell stories in the universe. Every film, just like every comic, has its own tone. So, that being said, uh, you know, in some ways, it's free from the constraints of an origin. Yes, yes. You get it? And what can we do with this power, with these characters in this universe? So, I thought this sequel was actually better than the original. It was a better movie experience. I enjoyed myself more. I laughed more. Uh, I felt that the original didn't have necessarily the... Uh, the punchlines didn't fall through. I was never convinced that um, Paul Rudd could be a superhero as Ant-Man. I-, I had so many questions after the original, and I always thought it was the weakest link. Now, my 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 I might be changing my belief on that. So uh, I really enjoyed this. I thought the 3D. Was is not worth the extra money. If you can watch it in 2D, go ahead. It has two uh, end credit scenes. The first one's very quick, and then the last one you got to wait till the last credits. So, where do you think that this movie now fits in this Avengers? universe of Marvel now. Well, you know, here's what I think. Just to give a little bit of context once again, what's interesting about what you just said, and I agree with everything you said, but I will add to it to say that, you know, Ant-Man is not, like you said, a superhero. Is he? How heck can he be a hero? He's not a hero in the traditional sense. He's sort of an anti-hero. His moral ambiguity, the fact that he's a thief, all these things. He's someone who's not connected necessarily to the main characters. He is a thief who came in on Hank Pym, who's this pivotal figure in the Marvel Universe. Right, played by Michael Douglas. By, by Michael Douglas, with a wife played by Michelle Pfeiffer, which is what the story revolves around. So, what's interesting is to see, okay, we've seen enough heroes in the Marvel Universe. What about somebody who's kind of sort of peripheral? 
that's interesting in itself. Right. And, and, and I think that, that not only does it work, but just like the comic books, if you establish a universe that's similar to this one, that takes elements of this one, uh, how do these elements interact with each other? How does somebody like Hank Pym fit into the Avengers, that storyline, that, you know, his historical background to the, <laughs> the Marvel Universe? So I, I like all of that, and I like the fact that we know this universe well enough to know and see. And I think it fits in very well. It fits in, it fits in like a glove. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, you, you were just saying, uh, how does this fit into the whole Marvel Universe? Uh it, I think they have a, a clearly defined vision of how these movies operate. So a lot of the things that I liked about this film in particular were the fact that the movie didn't really get going to like the, the, the first the end of the first quarter of the film, like the first half hour. It was really laying out the relationship between father and daughter. Uh, some old friends uh, and those relationships that were bitter and they were trying to be mended. So it was a lot of human stories before it even really truly got into the action. And I, those are the things that usually make me go to sleep. Every time you try and tell a human story within an action film uh, from Marvel. And I thought they nailed every single part. If anything, those were the touches that made this film special, I would say. Well, you know, I, I agree with you. And here's what I'm reminded of. It's, it, it's interesting that you picked up on that because TV and long-form storytelling, which is what TV is, has changed how we view movies, how we view stories. And this had a feel to it like an amped-up TV series. Right. You know, yeah, where, where absolutely. everything is much higher tech, effects, stakes, but at the same time, oh, look, the mom has been lost for a long time. We didn't even hear about the mom in the first film. Right. Now, you know, and so it's all this, again, what, what TV has done, uh, in my opinion, and how it's affected the Marvel Universe, the idea of having a universe where things that happen in the universe affect other things in the universe mm -hmm. is something that soap operas did, night, right. night soaps did, okay, and now what TV has done is taken that to the whole idea of, you know, how do you maintain interest? It's all about the story, like what you said, those stories, those, the human interest, the, the humans, and, and so taking from TV... If you've created these fantastic characters, but they have these interesting, soapy entanglements, <laughs> okay, you're, you're with it. You care. It makes you care. But you need that first act to make you care about these characters. When, If you decide to go see this film, which I think you should, I think yes. it's a really good time. Yes. You should go with your whole family, actually. It's like a family film. Yes. But I think at the core, this is a family film that is a comedy at heart which not every single Marvel movie necessarily is. This is a comedy with heart. And it touches on those, you know, father-daughter issues and th those, like, human touches that I think work so well in this particular film. I felt like this film finally understood what it was. I think this is the, the, the perfect example of how to create a great family film that happens to be a Marvel production. One of the things that Marvel has done is 
you know, not only uh, understand what good storytelling is and what people care about, right. but but uh, like what you just said, you know, realize that it's an experience that people are experiencing on different levels. Just like Pixar, which mm-hmm. we mentioned off uh, audio recording, Pixar set the bar higher. One of the things that Pixar does is acknowledge oh, right. that all the stories have to appeal to the younger generation and the older generation at the same time. This did that, and this did that in a way where, you know, you care about the stories because you understand who these characters are, what their motivation is. You understand Lawrence Fishburne as character in particular plays a character. You understand who that character is. It's a great cast, by the way. Great. Michelle Pfeiffer, Lawrence Fishburne. Superhero movies can get anybody now. There's there's nobody. Any Oscar. You know, I did think that the the Lawrence Fishburne casting was, was, was interesting because... I know him in the superhero genre as uh, Perry, Perry, the editor from uh, Man of Steel, from the Superman franchise in DC. So to bring him over to Marvel, I thought was not necessarily the best casting choice. Did you have any problems with that? Did you see Perry uh, from Superman in there? I didn't see Perry from Superman, but what I saw is, and again, as a I did it, I thought it was a bit distracting. By the way, film lover, I see. Lawrence Fishburne, who was in, you know, Coppola's opus of... <laughs> Matrix. Uh, uh, well, no, he was in well. Apocalypse Now. Right, and The Matrix is, as well. And, and Apocalypse Now had Marlon Brando, who was also in Superman. Yeah, yeah, he's... So, uh, you know, I see all these connections as a but, but, six By the way, of speaking of Lawrence Fishburne, one of the great things about this film is, a, is I think that this particular film, more than any other film that has used this technology, is the de-aging Technology. Oh my goodness! Holy oh my goodness. moly, you know man! What? You just you just you marvel at it. To to, to pardon yes. the pun, <laughs> you, mar- you marvel at just how fantastic, wow, and how much they've got it down. They've yes. got it down. Michelle Pfeiffer, down. Michael Douglas, Larry Fishburne. Wow, they they de-aged Larry Fishburne too. You know, I thought at first it was like old scenes that they had gotten back from the seventies or the eighties. They it got was it incredible. down. Incredible how the pores, the, those little nuances uh, that, that they, they seem like they were in their 40s. It was really incredible. It's seamless. Seamless. It completely Holy. seamless. You know, and that brings the conversation about this digitization of actors. Uh, are we headed down that route where we conserve the images of a lot of these actors or we actually give older actors a whole other career, like a third career maybe? Uh, where you can... S- Listen, my prediction... Okay, two things. One, we're already there, in my opinion. The Marvel movies, they've done it with Rob Downey Jr., done it with all the characters in the Marvel Universe. So we're already there. But my prediction is that there'll be that video game. That video game where the actors are still alive. Right. Whether it's Shatner as Star Trek, uh, Captain Kirk, where they'll do it. And and maybe it'll be the new Terminator, like because come on, right. they're they're going to pretend that Terminator three, four, and five did not <laughs> happen. Is, right. you know, like so, Schwarzenegger is he digitally there? You know, so I'm right. curious. But I just think that it'll get to a point where yes. Oh, we're they, heading down that route. The fact that they mastered this absolutely. in Ant Man vs. and the Wasp means that absolutely. the next movie 
is that, that's and, it. We're not the, even going to be able to tell the difference. They scratched upon it in the last in Star Wars, you know. Uh, oh, that's right. They scratched on it, you know. That's and, right. And Carrie Fisher was alive when she said, "Yes, make me young again." So you know, this is a really good movie, and I think for you guys that are maybe iffy about it because for a while it's been sort of the weakest link, it answers a lot of the questions of why Ant Man was not, not in, Avengers in Avengers three. Um, and what exactly happens, and that is revealed in one of the end credits. It answers it. If you want to stay for the end, the end, end, end credit, you ha- you're trained now. You know you're going to stay. You're going you're to stay. stay, but I don't necessarily think it's worth it. Well, here's what I will say. Okay, I think you should leave after the first credit. That's my particular opinion. Okay, all right. You know, I can't really argue that that <laughs> point of view. Okay, but I will say this: that that we're at a stage now where. Marvel movies have kind of staked out their own place yeah. in entertainment. Yep. And that's important. And that's important and significant. It's it's the beginning of something that may change and other things may take its place in the future 40 years from now, 20 years from now, 10 years from now. But Marvel has staked out its own place where it's in a s- interesting hybrid between uh, it's an existing IP... Uh, but it's been translated, but at the same time, there there are extensions of it in TV, you know, and and the movies are really only vehicles to keep recreating itself, you know. They're smart enough to know that as time goes on, you're gonna cast out different actors. Yeah, that t- times are gonna change. So all the new characters, you know, they're talking about all these movies with potentially, you know, the 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 female bodyguards from. You know, Wakanda, you know, that's so radically different. Oh, yeah. To, I mean, to, the, there was definitely like a female empowerment vibe here absolutely. because the, the main villain was a female. Yes. And the main, I would even say that the Wasp had more of a... Through line. Absolutely. I but agree not only through line, but I felt that the movie really was driven by her. And, and to a certain and her extent, relationship with her mom. Yeah. And then Michelle Pfeiffer, which was the... Actual uh, motivation and desire by the, our heroes to to fulfill the mission. You know, and and I'll say something else too. The power of uh, who Michelle Pfeiffer is. By the time you do get to see her and all that the plot that revolves around her is revealed, it's significant. Yeah. Because you don't just see this character. You see this character. You see Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh, yeah. You see this this actress. By the way, she doesn't of, age. No, exactly. You know, they didn't apply exactly. CGI yeah, towards right, the end. Exactly. It's, you couldn't tell between the young one and the exactly. older one. Practically. I was like, right. wow. Her hair's not so blonde, you know. <laughs> but that's it. But, 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 but that also suggests something. Again, you know, we were talking before, I think, prior to, you know, when Clint Eastwood did Unforgiven, he yeah. had grown into the role. And, right. And, you know what I mean? And and there are certain characters now, or certain actors, uh, Rob Downey Jr. in the Marvel Universe, by the time he did Iron Man, part of Iron Man's past, if you read the comics, really kind of parallels Downey's past and who Downey is, you know? So, you know, having a, a sense of an, an, an actor's past work and the body of work that stands behind them when they take on some iconic role. Even Michael Douglas, you believe he was a hero when he was younger because of who he is. Same thing with casting somebody like Michelle Pfeiffer as to who she is and what she's been, you know, in support of all these Michael Douglases and Al Pacinos. And it's great to see, great the, to see. The, the veterans, you know, the, yes. the icons we used to grow up with yes. still now reaching a younger audience. I mean, 
This is the power movies, of Marvel. In, yeah, the, in exactly. these superhero in genre these movies. movies, we would have never seen them. I mean, if, if, if you would have mentioned superhero movies to Michael Douglas back in the 80s, he would have spit in your he face. You. He would have exactly. spit in your face out of, exactly. out of just pure laughter. Exactly. Exactly. So the fact that Marvel's giving these guys uh, a, a, a third chance almost at, at having a, a, another Hollywood comeback, in the it, it's, of the it's incredible. And yes, it is. there's a great female vibe in this film, uh, a, a wonderful family vibe as well. I, I don't know, man. I, I can't say anything more great about this film. I really enjoyed myself to, tonight. I, I, I did too. And I think, it, again, you know, superhero films have become a genre. And Marvel, like other uh, filmmakers, we, which we talked about off audio, uh, have redefined the genre. Marvel, Kevin Feige, you know, have redefined the genre and and they do it better than anybody else. Nobody better than does anybody it better. else. They, they, no. Nobody does it better. I highly doubt that now that they fortify their weakest link as a top movie, uh, I can't wait for the trilogy. Sure. And you know, for the I, third one. And by the way, there was a question mark about it. That's, I have to uh, do more investigation on why that question mark came in. At, because at, at the end of the whole movie, uh, the last text that you see from the screen is Ant Man and the Wasp will return, and then a question, question mark, mark appears. What question the hell mark. was that all about? Well, you know, something else I gotta say, though, you mentioned earlier, and I, I forgot to mention it, was the humor. Oh, yeah, and, key, and, key. And, and it is key, and it's key to sort of, and you said something else, too, that I think is key. It knows what it is. It's self-aware. And, and it differentiates its comedy from the other comedies, like the Spider-Man humor. Right, right. yes. I'm Each like, film knows right. what it is. Knows That's what hard to do, It man. is hard to do, and, and again, it's something that's smart that I think Marvel has done in being aware that, you know what, we can only take ourselves but so seriously. right. And being aware of that, whereas the that's this is I think where the problem with DC, with DC is that because Batman led the charge, because Dark Knight or the Dark it was Knight a begins, template. Batman begins a very a successful template, template. A successful template, but not a sustainable one. Right, and not and that, for heroes. But who could have predicted that though? I don't think anybody was thinking that far ahead. No, and I thought the Man of Steel going dark, I thought was the right touch because yes. the problem with the Brandon Ralph Superman was that it was too much of an homage to the uh, 70s and 80s. Right. And it should have been dark, and I thought that it did its job, but I don't know if every single other movie had to be like well, that. Well, that's the thing. The right. thing is, it was artistically it was the right choice. But commercially, yep, no. That's a great point that you just made. Just to finalize, Michael Pena, the Hispanic angle here. Uh, In my opinion, you know, it's interesting. Or I want to hear yours first before I say anything. Well, I, I felt like they had a, a, a the secondary cast, the criminals, you know, some of the villains, the Michael Ti. That was very diverse. They had an Indian a, character, a Russian guy, a Russian guy. They really sort of knew exactly what cultural touch points to hit to include everybody. Smart, uh, yeah, smart. I mean, listen, in this particular case, yes, we understand that all the the protagonists are Caucasian white. There's no problem with that. No one's yelling, you know, protests. You know, we got to have like a Latino. In. No one's doing it. Uh, I thought that Michael Pena was hilarious in this film. Uh, actually, probably even more than the first time. I hear they have plans for him. Well, let me just say this. My opinion of Michael Pena, he's one of those actors uh, 
He he's a Latino actor. He can do drama. He can do comedy. He is equally adept right. at both. He can, he is he has what that the the like a Robin Williams or, or or you know the greatest comedians of all can do is he can move you. He can move you right. to laugh, or he can move you to cry. Yeah, absolutely. He's that level of talent, in my opinion. Yeah, but of course, he can he he can uh, inspire you, and he yeah. can just awestruck you. you exactly. Know? That, that, but he's got that ability, and again, that's just like a gift. But at the same time, yes, in my opinion, in terms of quote unquote a comedy, uh, comedy relief in these, you know, like you know, we're going to destroy <laughs> the planet. He's he's brilliant. He's brilliant. He is brilliant. He steals it. He steals it. Comic timing is excellent. He's smart enough. They're smart enough to know he's that good. I don't want to give it away, but he's got his moments in the film. Yeah, where it's yes, it's it's absolutely. But I, you know, I felt Ti was weak, man. That if if I had to nitpick on anything, have anything to do. He's just not a good actor. He's just not a good actor. His reactions were overly exaggerated, you know. But because they're so brief. You kind of just move on. Underwritten. 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 Yeah. Not, again, not that he necessarily could have And I'm sure he's risen. like, I'm, I don't mind being in, an, in a Marvel movie. Of course. <laughs> he, he's smart. Listen, I'd be, if I were to you, I'd be like, yes. <laughs> I'll play uh, the butler. I'll be the butler. So, yeah. Well, with, but, yeah. with that said... Uh, we're leaving the Lowe's theaters. Uh, Mike, was, it was great Lowe's. seeing this movie. Yeah, it was the AMC Lowe's AMC theaters. AMC Lowe's owns Lowe's, don't they? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Lincoln Square here on Broadway in 68th. Good movie. Uh, good seeing you too, man. You too, man. And that does it for another episode of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I want to thank Carmen Cabana and Mike Sargent for coming on the show. I learned a lot about cinematography, and hopefully you guys got a good sense of whether you should go see Ant-Man and the Wasp. I think you definitely should. And if you guys want to support the show, please feel free. Go ahead and share the podcast with all your friends. Subscribe and uh, leave a review if you can. I'm going to start making my way back to the pool, see if I can work up my tan a little bit, get some rays before I leave back to the United States, back to the city. And uh, hopefully you guys can uh, check out some more of the episodes uh, we have in the big, highly relevant library. I'll leave you guys for now. I'm Jack Rico. See you next week on another episode of Highly Relevant. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.